Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the birthplace of jazz and dental floss, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the birthplace of General Douglas MacArthur, and home of the Big Dam Bridge. Thank you for joining us for Episode 5. Tonight we have a special guest. Chief Deputy Rod Engler, a 53-year veteran of law enforcement and an expert in crime scene reconstruction and blood spatter analysis. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome at 347-989-1171. Good evening, everybody. Hello, Michael. Hello, Chief Deputy Engler. Well, hello, Hello, uh what? I was just going to say hello, everybody. Number one, I've really got to change that intro song. That, that That's a very non-menacing song. You listen to these true crime shows, and they all got menacing songs. And what do we got? The Sign by Ace of Base. <laughs> <laughs> Which reminds me of Pitch Perfect. Exactly. That's yeah, actually that's, what my girlfriend said. It's got to go. <laughs> yeah, she said, every time I hear that, I think of Pitch Perfect. Uh-huh. And Chief Deputy Angler, how are you tonight from California? Well, I am doing very well. Thank you for asking. It's beautiful out here. No storms like in Arkansas, I understand. And it's uh, very nice out, 70 degrees, sun shining, but it's going down in the west. I'm gonna yeah. need you, I'm going to need you to change places with me. I'm a, I'm going to need that 70 degree weather here in Arkansas. You can take these storms. I know. I hear you. <laughs> All right. Well, well, you want to you ready to get started, Michael? Or you want to make any announcements or um, no real announcements this week. Uh obviously we didn't have a show last night. There was some scheduling issues. For the Behind the Curtain show But that will be back I believe Two weeks from yesterday And you guys will have a brand new episode there 
And then obviously uh, tomorrow, uh, Thursday night, excuse me, we still have ASWF Aftermath recapping all the action that goes down in the Valiant Arena in Tuckerman, Arkansas. And this Saturday night, we got the big anniversary show for ASWF. So uh, that'll be a lot of fun. So stay tuned. Keep on the Facebook page for everything new, and we'll move on from there. Great. All right. Well, let's. Um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Uh, we'll call you Rod now, but I thought to just introduce you by your title. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing, where you grew up, and how you got into law enforcement. Please feel free to call me Rod. And uh, I'm in a career that started when I became interested in law enforcement at age 17. I uh, rode around in a police car with my cousin, who was a police officer in San Angelo, Texas. And we both grew up on a farm close to each other. Within, you know, I could see his house across the plains of cotton fields and grain. over about a half a mile away and we would walk to school together and I always admired him. And uh, when he became a, a police officer, uh, he was a professional baseball player and I wanted to play ball because I played a lot of baseball, but he threw his arm away and he went into the military and I gave up on the idea of being a baseball player. And then uh, uh, I, I wanted to go to college. And so I did that. I left uh, Texas. And actually, I went to school, first of all, in a little school with only 16, 16 people, and then went to a, another high school after the 10th grade. And, and uh, so then I um, went to go to college, and I went to Los Angeles because I, I had an uncle and aunt there, and they had no children, and they wanted me to live with them in Los Angeles. And I did that, and I started college there still interested in law enforcement. And by the way, just as a, just a little statement here, if I had my career to do all over again, I'd do the same exact thing. I still love it. Oh. I enjoy it. And, and uh, uh, I enjoy those days of being in the uniform and patrol. I have dreams about that occasionally, about every six months. And, and, and that's how much I've enjoyed my career. But anyway, uh, I... Uh, was a police officer in Los Angeles and then went from L.A. to Portland, Oregon uh, to go up where their life was a little slower because I was in the fast lane and I loved it. I didn't want to, you know, give me weekends off and you're killing me. I, I love Friday and Saturday nights because I enjoy people. I enjoy working with people and I enjoyed uh, helping people and I enjoyed putting people in jail, the bad guys, and uh, finding out the truth. It was just a challenge to me still is. So anyway, uh, I went to Oregon because the sheriff's office there in 1969 when I left L.A. required a bachelor's degree. I thought, well, this is a progressive department. And you probably don't remember Multnomah County, M-U-L-T-N-O-M-A-H. Uh, it's very, very progressive. It's the county that covers Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. A very large county. And had about a thousand personnel, men and women, and so I did have a degree because I obtained that degree. And you can't even get in the door unless you have a degree, and that's the way it is today. And that was unheard of. And they started that in 1966. And that agency was led by uh, uh, Lee Brown. And I don't know if you remember Lee Brown, but Lee Brown 
was our sheriff uh, after I started there. Then he went from there to Atlanta as the chief of police and from Atlanta to Houston as the chief of police and from Houston to becoming Clinton's drug czar. And after he was drug czar, he went back to Houston and became mayor of Houston. His wife passed away, and I think still think he teaches today at Rice. I don't know. I think I heard that he was teaching a very – and I know I'm getting off the subject a little bit, but you'll find this interesting. He's a a very shy person. He's very large, very tall, uh, very shy, one-on-one. But you get him in front of a crowd, he's a totally different person. He's very eloquent. He's very – has a great vernacular and uh, an amazing guy. So oh, I, wow. know, I worked under his and other sheriffs and went into homicide uh, and didn't understand blood at all. I'd go to these scenes, uh, Lisa and Michael, and did not understand blood and started studying it. And I had a cattle operation. I was raised on a farm and uh, with cattle and horses in, in Wall, Texas, where I just started my, this little uh, story to you. And so I love being around cattle and horses, and I bought some acreage and built a feedlot and uh, had my kids do a lot of the work there. I have three children and uh, had them do a lot of the work and uh, had a feedlot where we you know, not, could get that blood and, and work with it to try and understand blood patterns. Mm-hmm. And it got a little better at it. There was a school in New York on this, so I paid my way to go to that school and uh, learned more and more. And I'm still learning today. I mean, I, it's uh, there's so much to learn in it, but uh, it has been so helpful in my career to understand. And I can remember back when other detectives would say, what is this about smoke and marriage, you know? <laughs> right. Meaningless stuff. And, uh, boy, that has been proven wrong. And I remember going to that school in New York in the 70s and coming back in and going to our crime lab in Portland, and I'm not being critical, but went back and gave a, a a class on it just as soon as I got back from what I had learned. And, again, it was like shaking your head, nods, and that smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. It's meaningless. And and, and uh, look where it is today. Right. Use it in exactly. Most, use that, it all the time as late as this morning in a conference call this morning with a, a case I'm working in the penitentiary. Yeah, and that was the most fascinating part about your book is how you got into being a homicide detective but wanting to know more and wanting to understand. And so doing all the experimentation, when you when you drop this into blood that's pooled, this is what happens, this is what you observe. I mean, it was a, a, science, a very scientific approach in the controlled circumstances to gain the, the understanding of, of how things how things happen and how they look when they do. Um, and, and, which I, and I still, with it, still do a lot of experiments with it to determine something. You know, like there was an interesting thing where dropping blood into water in a sink, uh, fill up a sink with water and dropping some blood in it. The blood actually goes in and comes back out, flies up in the air, doesn't mix with the water. And oh, cool! Oh, that is that is it's it's great that you do that. I don't know of you know I don't know of a lot of people that take that academic 
approach to you know what they do and what they understand. So that's well, really you know, it's power suggestion. I'm going to suggest something to you. I'm going to tell you what I do, and you'll probably, you will go do it, and Michael will go do it, and you'll find it strange when you end up doing it. But when I lecture, I, I talk about how that oftentimes when I go to the restroom and wash my hands, you know how the paper towels hang down? Mm-hmm. And then I'll have water on my fingers and cast it off onto the paper and watch what direction it goes and do it this way and that way. Because... Uh, I will have just lectured on that little part, you know, and, and I okay. lecture about it and tell the story I'm telling. And then you see guys in there doing the same thing. I don't see the women doing it because I'm not in their restroom. But you will. Right. Do it. Lisa, you will <laughs> stop doing it. And I, I, you will go do it. See, what I use are you a, talking about? <laughs> I use a hand towel in my bathroom at home, but I will probably be doing it at work tomorrow. Well, you can see the pattern on the paper. Yeah, you'll see the pattern mm-hmm. on the paper, and uh, it won't show as well as on cloth, but when that paper hangs down, just do it. And then just another pattern that is very, very common, which we spend a lot of time with, is uh, with a wet hand, grab that paper towel and crunch it up, and then put it out flat. That's the and same type pattern that you see on clothing when someone with a bloody hand grabs someone, and when the lab lays it out, it doesn't look like a handprint, doesn't look like a hand at all. But it is so unique, it's not a footprint, a hairprint, a hair transfer, or anything. Mm-hmm. It is a it's grabbing pattern that has DNA in it. Right. And, uh, that is – I'm also going to – I'm going to also be looking at the – you know, when you wash your hands and you're reaching over to get the towel and the, the water falls. I'm going to be examining the water on the counter. To see what it tells me. I want to wipe it off before I start and see what it tells me. <laughs> yeah, that's that a is really, it's, that's a white yeah. yeah. Well, I have to, see, the people I before use. me don't dry it when they leave the bathroom. I always dry the counter before I leave the bathroom. I know that. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> I'm weird well, let about me that tell you another pattern. Get another pattern that's fun that you can do in the kitchen or the bathroom is get a straw and fill it with water, hold it up and release your thumb. You know, hold the water in it and then start to release and let a drop drop into a drop. It's another pattern which is called blood into blood, which creates satellite spatters out to the side. And you can't see it, but they go as high as 18 inches. And that's pretty high. They'll actually go out and cast off, I mean, project out to the side, leaving little secondary spatters. And how does that apply to a scene? Well, for instance, a case I had in Wyoming, this woman was punched in the nose. And I knew that she stood there and bled in that scene without moving because the blood from her nose, which is the only source of blood on her body before she got shot, was dripping between her legs. And she's arguing with this guy who punched her before he shot her after she went down. But she's dripping blood between her legs. It creates that same satellite spatter that I described with the experiment in the kitchen. That's on the only on the inside of her shoes, and not on the outside. So I did that demonstration in the courtroom in Wyoming with a pair of white shoes, drops of blood with from an eyedropper, stage blood, to create that same satellite pattern. To because it was very important that 
it was known that she was standing there and got punched because there were two witnesses in the car before this guy that got out of the car and went over. And his two friends were watching, and he shot her after she went down on the ground. But that pattern was important to show the jurors. Mm-hmm. Right, because it corroborates what the witnesses said. Yeah. And if you've got the, and, and, the defendant saying, I never hit her. I never touched her. Yeah, it, and it's just putting puzzle. It's just putting these little bricks together, these little pieces that uh, have a story that can't be refuted. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're facts. Uh, so, and that's what we deal in is facts. Facts that give you, Correct. you know, that that, can, that are pretty hard to challenge. Like, what what is a fact? A fact is, like, for instance, uh, if, if Michael is shot and the bullet enters his right temple, exits the left. That's a fact that can never change. It'll always be mm-hmm. the way. It's called, and I use this in trials, it's called a fact beyond change, or a stab wound that enters the front and exits the back. That's a fact mm-hmm. beyond change. You know that pathway. People can lie, but the evidence never lies. The evidence always tells you a story. If you get a lot of these little pieces, you've linked them together for a story that you have to tell the jury. And you keep it Correct. simple. You keep it simple simple and I I think unfortunately sometimes today's society with CSI and all these crime shows people don't understand you don't look at each piece individually and it has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt you look at all the pieces you put them all together and you look at that entire picture for your proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And people don't understand that dealing with circumstantial evidence. They think if it doesn't, if one piece doesn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt, then you discard it, that it becomes meaningless. And so that is, that is, you know, a great way of explaining. You have to look at all the pieces and put the puzzle together and show that big picture not take that piece and say, well, it's not an edge, so I'm just going to toss it away because mm-hmm. you might have a big part missing. So, and well, I know in your book... It's more oh, than, let me interrupt you. It's a little bit more than that before you get to the book. It's a little bit more in a, mm-hmm. a case and example. A case, a good example is all these pieces in in a recent case were... Very, very strong. But the defense brought in an expert in 19 rounds that are fired, and the defense brings in an expert to talk about only one bullet to cloud the issue of all the, mm-hmm. bullets, all the other information, all the bullets. And, and you're right about that. It's, it, it's you, That's all, often used as the only tool that the defense has is pick one thing out and try to destroy the prosecution's case with that one thing that you, you just can't pull it out of the hole. You've got to treat it holistically. You have to treat a case with all these little pieces. And and sometimes you don't see the whole picture. Like, And I explain that to jurors when I start out, uh, when I'm qualified, is a crime scene is like a big picture. And you may have a cow in the middle of that picture, a cow in a pasture. And the mm-hmm. cow's right leg missing and the tail baby missing, but you still know it's a cow. And you still have right. enough facts to be able to describe that scene. 
So right. And uh, the uh, experimentation, going back to that for a second, uh, in the O.J. Simpson case, there were some patterns around Nicole Simpson's body that you weren't quite sure looking at them what they were, and so you went back to experimentation and uh, got a canine and stage blood and and a a stand-in and then found that the patterns that you had seen were created by her dog, Cato. And that was just, that was awesome thinking. But did you, did you come to that because you knew she had a dog or, or how did you come to, well, let me go get a dog and see what, you know, well, there were around her head. She was she actually bled on an upper step, upper meaning one mm-hmm. step up. If I'm standing at a step of you know, about four steps, and her head was bleeding very profusely, big pool of blood, one step up, and then her body was moved to cut her throat, and she Correct. lay and was found on the bottom step. But around her body, around her head, and on that upper step, and we know that the the dog was barking, the Akita was barking and running up and down because we could see the dog footprints. But what are all these little tiny, tiny stains of projected blood around her head and on her back because she's laying on her mm-hmm. left side? When we did the experiments, and, and I thought I knew what it was, when we did the experiments, we had dogs step into to, to blood at a high school, at David Douglas High School, where uh, the kids were helping us in many cases but they was blind. They didn't know what they were doing. They had no idea they were working on the on the O.J. Simpson case. And they brought mm-hmm. about four dogs. And our sheriff's office brought their canine. And we had them with a the, – I remember the sheriff's office using a ball to get the dog all excited. He's jumping around in the blood. It created the mm-hmm. same type. And what it is, and you're asking me and your audience may be asking, well, why are some drops big and some little? The smaller the surface – that blood is flung from, the smaller the drop. Now, let me paint a picture for you. If, if I have a, my, if my finger is bleeding, my right index finger, and I'm holding it down to just point it down to the ground and it's bleeding, well, that's not very much surface for that volume of blood to hold on to and cling to before gravity takes over and it drops, and it creates a drop that is smaller than if I have my finger extended pointed outward and and parallel to the ground, then more blood on that same finger can accumulate with my finger in that position before that volume builds up bigger than pointed down and it drops and small. So think mm-hmm. of a dog's toenails and there's between the dog's toes. If you look at a dog and look between their toes, you'll see these tiny, tiny little hairs. Well, blood gets on that. And when mm-hmm. there's force and it's injected and it creates that cast off, the smaller the surface, like the toenail of a dog, the hairs from a dog creates these little spatters that were all over her. So Correct. Correct. And that and then means we did that you created this, yeah. that, that you, you know, thought of, I mean, it just, like I said, it's just it's just amazing the way you approach it. Now, is there in the book you mentioned that that a person with an academic background who doesn't have any 
field experience. Um, they approach things differently. And sometimes they approach things that don't always make a lot of sense. You used a, an expert who said that blood drops or spatter patterns were from a pencil being dropped, which doesn't make oh, sense. A pencil dipped oh, yeah. in blood and dropped multiple times. It, yes, it could be that, but if there's not a pencil in any of the pictures, it probably wasn't. And yeah, you, do you find that a lot? I, I do find, uh, well, for instance, in one case, uh, the spatter that got back onto a person had to do, according to the defense expert, of washing the blood off of his hand in the sink, and it it spattered back onto his clothing. That was the most ridiculous explanation ever. And just and you just shake your head. But jurors don't understand that. Jurors, you mm-hmm. know, if you, you really have to identify, you have to have the jurors, first of all, believe you. You have to depend upon your facts, and those facts have to be correct. And if you think for one thing that you have a question, if you feel that there's a question mark about your facts, don't say it. Correct. Because I'll tell you one thing. The other going to recognize it, and they're going to eat your lunch right there. And you just don't say it. You just stick to your guns, stick to the guns with what you do know and not what you don't know, and you don't speculate. So academically speaking, uh, I know that when I first started going into and reading books on blood patterns, I can remember where I was reading it on a chase lounge in Louisville, Kentucky, because I was lecturing for the first time at Southern Police Institute in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, back in the 70s, and I read in the book that the higher the drop, the larger the stain, the larger the spatter, the higher the drop. So if you drop a drop of blood from an airplane, it's going to be a large splat when it hits the ground. And I, and I lectured on that, and I was so wrong because it's just not true. But I did it what, mm-hmm. what a lot of academics do, and I can name some. They actually will – it's what they think in their head, and it's just not true because they haven't experimented and they like to write. And, and we need, believe me, we need researchers. We need academics. We all have to work together. But sometimes they work against you from what they think is the answers. And and, and I could just name many, many different instances or where this has occurred. Uh, right. Like, for instance, and maybe I'm talking too much here, but one of them was, and, and this is an interesting one, I've been to a lot of scenes. I've seen a lot of dead bodies. I've seen people alive dying in front of me. Uh, I've seen shootings. I've seen police shootings. I've been present when they occur. And reading the literature about people that expirate blood, you know, blood coming from their mouth or their nose, they will state academically that expirated blood, that which comes from your nose or your mouth, when you're breathing, when you're alive, okay, when your heart's pumping, Mm-hmm. That 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 happens when people cough, or when they breathe, or when they sneeze. I have never, in my whole life, ever, and nobody's ever been explained, ever seen any or heard of anybody sneezing when they're dying. Right. It never has happened, and and so and that's in the literature because someone thought that that's what occurred. But nobody can ever document. There's never been one documentation. I know you Google. Go Google and see if you can find a picture of somebody sneezing with blood dying. All right? No. I've heard that one in Jody Arias. 
Um, What's the Jody Arias case? Am I sneezing blood? The, that's one of the things that, uh, it, you know, they have all these weird, these people that think she's innocent and they have all these weird theories about how uh, the backstabs are because he was holding her and she had her hands over his shoulder and was trying to get away. And she wasn't really trying to hurt him. She was just trying to get away. And then they have all these theories about the, the blood spatter on the sink and the vanity ma- table and mirror. Mm-hmm. About how they're not really related to her stabbing him in the chest. Or the gunshot in his head or whatever. It's just, you can't even, they don't even make sense half the time. <laughs> but um, do you think it's, with academics, is that they're, they're approaching it from, they're not approaching it from a police officer's perspective of wanting to get an answer, but from a perspective of, well, a global, this is, these are all the things that could have happened. Well, and that's it. Um, But it's more, it's it's from their viewpoint and, and not being critical. It's wanting to do and be involved in a career that's so exciting and so much fun and so much on television and in the media that being unable to go into or become a police officer or work in a laboratory oftentimes, uh, they do, they're self-taught, a lot of them are self-taught. A lot of them, uh, you know, academics go to school and and go to these classes. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't take the place of being experienced and going to a scene. When you go to a scene, not only is it just looking at the scene, it's also interviewing people and what he or she has to say about it. And if there is, is that, does that comport to what they said? I mean, are they lying? And, and, and then you learn through all, all these lies and all the truths and, and, and what's truth and what is a lie. You learn about scenes. Mm-hmm. And, and then you see the same patterns over and over and over again throughout your career. And right. so they like a library in your mind. And and when you see these patterns, you know, oh, well, I know this person's been shot, and I know that the person that uh, uh, where that person was standing when he or she was shot, but who did it? You know, what we do is we find out who, when, what, where, and how. That's the five things we try to determine when we go to a scene. What, when, where, and how, and who, you know, who, what, when, where, and how. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the difficulty in doing this, we can always determine, you know, the what and the when and the where. But the who, what you have to really work on, and that's correct. We, that, that, that's the challenge. But sometimes but the what, to, how, and where we, can lead you to the who. Yeah. That's right, exactly. And then what you see, the who, when, what, where, and how. The what, the what. Let's let, let's take a what. For instance, you have a gunshot, and a person been shot uh, in the head, and uh, his partner was in the bathroom when it happened so to speak but when you look and then you see that he's been shot and you see that he didn't shoot himself and there's only one person in the house and that one person in the house says well there was an intruder that came in the first thing that you want to do is what what do you think you do what would you do you mean you got these two guys live together and uh, they get along with each other and you get a call, and an intruder comes into the house according to the, the partner who's in the bathroom when it goes, 
when he shot an intruder broke in and left. What would you do? What do you do? Wouldn't you ask the neighbors, maybe? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, if, if you're in the bathroom and intruders break in, you call 911. Oh, okay. Well, Before the guy no, shot. No, the but if you wait until after he's shot. Okay, you're, you're there, the body's laying there, and and you hear this story, and uh, what would you do? The first thing that you do, you say, hey, Michael, you know, I, you know, very interesting. Hey, by the way, you know, just as a procedure, can I have your clothes? The clothes you were wearing at the time. Oh, yeah, no problem. You know, Michael takes off his clothes, gives his clothes, he puts on a robe, blah, blah, blah. And we find this high-velocity mist. Michael's in the bathroom. We find this little invisible spray of blood from the from onto his right. onto his uh, clothing, and then we determine uh-huh. whose blood is that because we know it's a high-velocity mist from gunshot. Okay, whose blood is it? So you send it to the lab. It comes back. Well, that's uh, his buddy's blood on him. Well, how'd you get? And that's where when here's what happens. Let me tell you what happens because it goes into what we we're talking about academics. So because this happens so much in gunshot cases. So Michael. You know, he goes to jail. You're Michael there. He goes to jail mm-hmm. for killing his partner. And they've been buddies for years, high school buddies. They're really close. But he goes to jail. And uh, then he says, well, yeah, I forgot to tell you something. That I went and gave him, and I tried to resuscitate him. And, he, you know, when I was trying to resuscitate him, pumping on his chest, that blood got onto my jacket or my shirt or what have you. But then he doesn't understand the pattern. He doesn't mm-hmm. understand that you can tell the difference between expirated blood and that from high-velocity blowback of blood that goes back towards the shooter. And your audience may not know what I'm talking about, but if a bullet enters someone's head, uh, that's a large volume of liquid, and that liquid doesn't uh-huh. compress. It's not like gas, and it goes back towards where the bullet came from, and it goes back to up to about three feet. Right. And that. That's what okay. gets on someone, but Michael's in the bathroom. How could he get it on him? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's and the right. bathroom is 10 feet away. Yeah. That's right, and that's why you get well, that door. Michael, where were you? Yeah. you know? And the door. In, in fact, what was it, Sarah Johnson in Idaho? You, that, you, mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to tell you exactly. She was asleep in her bedroom. Yeah. And when the door was shut, and yet she said, yeah, the door was shut. I hear these shots, and I, and I run out, and my mother's been shot, and uh, my dad's been shot. And yet when we went into the house, and I went to the house too, I mean, months later, still uh, tissue and blood was in the door jam. The door couldn't have been closed. And actually, mm-hmm. in those large pieces of bone that went all the way across the hall, uh, into her bedroom when she said her door was closed because her it was just you just walk across a little four foot hall and mm-hmm. you're into mom and dad's bedroom. You know he she killed them both because uh, they wanted her to break up with this individual that was a dope dealer and 22 years of age. She's 16 or 17. Correct. Um, and and one of the ways and and sometimes people make it seem as though avoiding leaving evidence or avoiding having evidence on you is something, you know, that takes a rocket scientist, but she just put a robe on backwards 
and use that to cover what? her clothes. She she was pretty smart, very and then, very smart. Obviously, yeah, very smart. Kudos to the kudos to the detective or sheriff or whoever it was who stopped the trash man. Oh, you're because so if she made the call five minutes yeah. later, that robe would have been gone, and the gloves, and I think yeah. a rubber glove. So yeah, people right. Right. Uh, as. Yeah. As uh, on on live PD, they have a, a, a an officer from a drug task force, I think, or gang task force in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Sticks Larson, and he's always saying, "Yeah, we don't catch the smart ones," and that's they think they're very smart, but they're really not. No, if they were smart, they wouldn't be doing it. You know, mm-hmm. Correct. That would be the smart people, people would say no. Some are above the law and they'll get caught. Uh, and they think they're above the law. And uh, eventually it'll get you. Although we know there's people out there that's, you know, running free, but time will tell. Correct. If you get people that won't give up, that's one of my mottos never give up. Just keep working like. Uh, I don't care how long it right. takes. You'll get a break. Zone. Yeah. And I, I said this about uh, the the case we did about Mena, Arkansas. And then I think I might have said it with O.J. Simpson. They didn't see justice in this world, but they're going to see it in the next. Yeah. If you believe, you have faith, you yeah. know about that. So. And so... Um, and I I think if if the family believes that, it might give them a little bit. Although I know it's very difficult from a couple of friends Extreme. of mine who <clears throat> a friend of my family who had a a daughter killed, and they they've never solved it. So um, let's move. We talked about Sarah Johnson in Idaho, which was. A cool case. How about David Deuced Diced? Uh, David Diced wife... was a yeah. Was it Sandra? Yes. In Michigan, yeah. Grand Rapids, I believe it was. David Diced uh, was stated that on a particular morning that. Uh, he, he he was having issues with his wife, and they were sleeping in separate beds, and he hears a couple of gunshots, and he runs upstairs. Kids kid scream. He goes into the bedroom and states that she's got the gun. She shot herself, and she shot herself with an automatic, uh, I think a 90-millimeter, twice in the head. And the medical examiner stated that the first shot would have incapacitated her to the ability that she couldn't pull the trigger for the second one. And there was high velocity misses, tiny little specks of blood that would go back towards the shooter. So the first thing that the detectives did that got there was got his gray T-shirt. And uh, they flew that T-shirt to Portland. And we were able to look at that T-shirt. And it took about a half hour before we were able to find these tiny little specks. Not only little specks of her blood turned out the DNA was her blood, but 
pieces of her tissue from her brain was on his shirt. Well, he's like Michael was in the restroom in that analogy that we used. He's he's sleeping downstairs. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in that trial, we actually put the bed in the courtroom and tilted it up on the podium so the jurors could see the bed and the spatter pattern and his shirt. And it was all over his shirt. When we found one, they were so small. And then we magnified those. And uh, there was like 29 on his right shoulder, uh, which was closest to her when he pulled the trigger and shot his wife twice. And here's another thing we did. And and we went to the range with a person that was not familiar with uh, that nine millimeter. Actually had the gun. They flew it to Portland. And we took a range officer and he took his wife who'd never fired a gun in her life. And get this. So anyway, she's there at the range. And and I'll never forget it. And we're filming it. So we we don't care what the results are going to be. You know, if it goes against us or it goes for us, and that's what's important. You're not Mm -hmm. afraid, you know. Just let the facts do the talking. So when she pulled the trigger, it jammed. Do you know what that's caused from? That's called loose wrist or... uh, when it jams like that, you've got to hold an automatic tight in your hand. And right. she wouldn't have been able to do that the position that she was laying in in the bed. And another thing, her husband was very abusive, but yet he was a pillar of the community, donated a lot of money, and that, that community is where Calvin College is. It's a very strong Christian community. And uh, so he was donating to that, and, and, and I was invited to come back and speak after the trial. But the, the town was so divided over it, they had me not come back for a year until a year later because people were making choices as to which side they were going to go on, the victim side or the suspect side. Right. But I didn't go in and do that. Like, and it would be months later, like three months after she was shot, that this uh, the sister uh, was in a, a women's prayer group. And a woman remembered that sister saying, oh, my sister, uh, Sandy in this case, Sandra, uh, diced and oh you know she's really afraid of her husband and she told me that if anything ever happens to me go to my china clock cabinet and go to the bottom drawer and uh, there's a letter there well nobody thought of that it's like, it'd be like several months later or something like that when the woman reminded the sister Sandra's sister of this so she goes to the police and they go and sure enough there's a letter there that she talks about a previous incident where she went to the hospital and it was a cover-up. He beat her up with uh, with an implement. She was into horses. And she, right. had, she had a tack room. And she was beat with an instrument and he was right there with his Carhartt jacket and he had blood on his Carhartt jacket. And if somebody would have recognized that blood pattern, they would have known that's a medium velocity spatter pattern of, of low imp- or, or medium impact. From a beating, and he beat her and got right. away with it. She wrote it in the letter, so fearful of him. Isn't that something? Right. And I so, think she, he initially, that was his, probably his initial plan was beat her in the barn and try and say the horses kicked her to death. Or a horse kicked her exactly to death. exactly what he, Yeah, and she survived. <laughs> and that, that, I don't think. Yeah. I don't know. And then, that. so he went to plan yeah. B, which... I, I don't think it's very smart if you're going to shoot someone, don't shoot them twice and try to say they committed suicide. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I unless the first time you just that. wing them. 
Yeah. You know, if you get two shots in the head, the first either one's gonna prevent them from being able to fire a second a a second shot. In this case, that's true. In in this case, Doctor DeMaio, who testified, he was from Bear County in Texas, and he was an expert uh, uh, witness in this case. We talked with each other before we took the stand. And he said that first shot would have been like going into your garage and yanking the electrical panel off your wall. Totally mm-hmm. yanking it off, disconnected. It was lights out instantly. And but he the prosecutor uh wanted more information on that. So he he needed more more facts than just that. And that's how I got Right, that. right. But that together the 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 forensic pathology and the uh, the clothes and the spatter on the clothes that that two together tells the whole story. Yeah, and you have four disciplines there. You've got ballistics, you've got uh, autopsy trajectory, you've got blood patterns in order to be mm-hmm. able to reconstruct and, and DNA. Right. Four resources right, right there that explains what a reconstructionist does. So he takes the right. DNA, takes the blood pattern takes the autopsy, meets with each one of those individuals, and puts together a case with with a report that this is what the facts say. Correct. Correct. And he doesn't do it all himself. Look at the pictures and say, oh, this is what this means, and this is, yeah. So, and a lot of times do you, you would look at pictures, though, at this stage in your your career, but prior to that, when you started in homicide, you were actually applying your uh, your knowledge to the scenes that you were working in, scenes that other other detectives were working. I don't understand your question. I, I, well, I because I mean, I think <laughs> I still go to. Sleep. I think. Well, I think now when you're working on cases, you're not there for the initial crime scene no uh, you're right processing so you would have either video or pictures taken during that that initial stage but you do have that experience from working that initial stage over the course of your career mm-hmm. and that would probably give you some something of an advantage over an academic who's never seen a crime scene and had the smells and the sounds and the 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 people and sometimes the uh, chaos that is going exactly. on around you as you're trying to to process and do your job. Well, uh, they're basically moving parts. a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of things going. Moving parts when you're in a scene, and you learn very very quickly how to control it. You've got to be right. in control of that scene. Don't lose the evidence. You're right. Right. So, um, and now another case uh, that was interesting, kind of the same, uh, another husband who thought death was easier than divorce, uh, Noyce Howard, who uh, killed his wife Donna in Washington State. And I think he worked with Bob Keppel on that one. I did. Bob Keppel is such an intelligent, wonderful guy. He's uh, been ill lately. And, oh. Uh, uh, some issues uh, medically. 
and uh, still an amazing guy, but uh, is home a lot more than he should be. He has to be. He he's, he's still uh, helps out. I just recently called and asked him for some advice like two months ago, mm-hmm. and uh, highly admire him and his wife Sandy. So but yeah, yeah I, I've always admired him. He he worked on Ted Bundy, of course. Um, but I've seen many interviews, and I've read his book uh, about Ted Bundy, and and seen many interviews. And he he is he's he's one of the most intelligent people that you know I've ever seen, and very quick on his feet as well. In the interviews that I've seen, um, you know he just knows facts and names and details even from a case, the Bundy case, 20 years before. And that was that's an admirable quality. I've never had the privilege of speaking to him, no. Oh, I have I not. Do that. You, I should line you up with him to put him on your program. He, he's amazing. He, he, he's he got an unbelievable mind. And he's, he's, oh, he's I would love guy. that. I would love that. He may know a friend of mine. Uh, Sean Wheeler, who has been in, you know, like true crime discussions and things like that. And um, he's, uh, he may have talked to Bob Keppel a few times. I'm not sure. I know he's friends with Richard Walter, who's another character. Yeah, he is. You know Richard? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, he's a character. He is a character. I'm surprised. He's a smart guy, too. I'm surprised Sean Wheeler has never spoken to you. <laughs> I don't know who Sean Wheeler is. I, I, oh, sounds familiar. <laughs> oh, this is this was in the West Memphis Three case and uh, Philip Workman and a couple of other uh, criminal death penalty cases from Tennessee and Arkansas. So but that'd be funny. What, I've what got Sean I've got is? something up on Sean. What does Sean do? What's his? What is he uh, medical? Well, he's just—he's a no. He's a um, he's a lay uh, private citizen that, as he says, likes sticking his nose in other people's business. He's not an expert in anything, but he he knows a lot of experts, and he has gotten you know, talk to many experts about different aspects of cases and uh, learn from them about those cases. Uh, So he just, he likes to debate. And so he uses that to have informed debate rather than just, I believe they're innocent. Pardon? No, he's not. No, no, he's, he's not, um, I don't know if he would ever even do something like that. He's been interviewed, but never, he doesn't do podcasts or anything like that. And I haven't spoken to him in many, many years since I moved back to New Orleans. So, uh, but he's, yeah, he's a character. (laughs) Does he write write or what? What do you mean? Oh, yeah, he's extremely, yes. Oh, he well, he writes on internet discussion boards and things like that. 
Like I said, okay. he likes to debate. And, okay. uh And, I, you know, I'm the same way. I like to debate. So if I read an article and there's a, a misstatement of fact in it, I will leave a comment that says, well, this isn't exactly accurate. This is what really happened. And then people will come on and say he's innocent. And I will say, well, not according mm-hmm. to the evidence. And that's kind of how this mm-hmm. show got started is to look at these criminal cases not from a belief and not from what the media articles are portraying in cases, but from what the courts have seen and heard in a Mm -hmm. way to explain why the courts aren't ruling the way people think they should be. So... uh, you know, I spoke with you about the Rodney Reed case where his DNA is in and on her body, but they claim he's innocent uh, based on a secret affair that was never proven. Mm-hmm. And that her fiancé is the real killer and the cops are corrupt and covering up for him because he was a police mm-hmm. officer. And they, mm-hmm. they just don't believe Wheeler, he did it. Is he a hypnotherapist? Sean no, no. <laughs> um, no, no, he's actually, uh, he's like an electronics technician. Mm-hmm. And um, he, at, at the time I knew him, he was working for a company in Memphis. Oh. So, but uh, like I said, he's just a person who likes to debate and likes to, uh, discuss different bases, and when he has mm-hmm. a question, he he has several different experts on his speed dial, and he calls them up and and chats and learns new things. So I'll just try no, and reach no, out no. to him. <laughs> so, um, but it's it's kind of funny that you don't know him because. I would think you would be one of the people that he would have talked to years ago. Um, well, there's a lot of great people out there. You know, I'm just one of a many, 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 many people true. that uh, do what I do. So, right. A lot of good people, too. A lot of smart right. people. Yes. Luckily. Hopefully there are more of us smart ones than not. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> Back to Howard in Washington. Um, And as I recall, there was a delay between the murder and Mr. Howard's arrest. And can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, how things happened, what happened? Bob Keppel brought that case to Portland, Oregon when I was with the sheriff's office. And that was the first case that I consulted on, scared me to death and said this is a horse kick case where uh, Howard, uh, Mr. Howard, uh, stated that Donna went out, Russell Howard, I think was his name, and Donna went out to feed her horse, and the horse kicked her in the head, and there was a lot of blood, and would I be able to give an opinion? And so I remember exactly where we were seated in my second-floor office in, in Multnomah County, and took some time off to to sit with him 
and we looked that thing over, and I was surprised at some of the things that we observed in that when she was allegedly kicked, her head was soaked with blood, and there was no way that uh, the blood could fill her hair in the position that she was laying in. Uh, she was actually uh, it was thought that the horse kicked her and he projected her against a, a, a timber that was pretty mm-hmm. had a real sharp edge and that that's what created the hole in her right temple. But a medical examiner testified that that was a hammer blow. They found an expert, Bob Keppel did, and that was a typical signature classical hammer blow and not from that timber because there was no, in looking at the wound microscopically, there was no debris, no cobwebs, there was no uh, wood fragments or anything that you would think would have been there, and there was actually no blood on that uh, protruding piece, which would have punctured into her brain with a hammer mm-hmm. blow. And then there was a, a bloody blanket inside the house and utility room that the police didn't even collect. I found that out much later. And uh, so she was actually beaten with a hammer, and he staged it and made it look like that she was actually kicked by a horse and made that call. And a lot of times those phone calls, those 911 calls, which there wasn't 911 then in those years, uh, I think mm-hmm. that was in the uh, 70s. Um, 1975. He called, had a story. Yeah, he had a story. And that story was that Donna went out to feed the horse, and the horse kicked her. Well, horses, you know, you know, their front feet are more dangerous than their back feet. And it just uh-huh. wasn't, and there wasn't any in the case. So I collected all kinds of cases across the country when I would lecture about show me a, a horse kick, a horse kick to the head. And there were several. But there was no similarity to between that and the autopsy results of Donna Howard. And so that was my first one. He got convicted. He's dead now. Uh, he died, and she was she knew horses very well. She was a trick rider in rodeo. Right. She understood right. horses. And right. she'd ride upside down on the horse, ride on the horse's back. And, uh, she had a lot of horse acumen. And, right. And it, it just wasn't. Th- and then there were grab patterns on her jacket. Boy, if we had that jacket today, and it, things have changed so much with DNA. There was no such thing Correct. as DNA then. And yeah. so... Uh, that grab pattern would have been analyzed right away, but it was where she was moved and, and laid out. So, and and that uh, illustrates how the advances in science and how we understand these things have changed. For example, in 1975, you probably and up until probably 1980 or somewhere around there. You probably very rarely had detectives wearing gloves once dusting for fingerprints had taken place. Yeah, no gloves, because no I, booties, no nothing. I I know in the in the 90s, once evidence was subjected to any testing and all testing that they could do at that time, it was never again handled gloves. It was handled, and now they're trying to go back and get touch DNA, but unfortunately, what was normal practice and was the way it was because there was no other testing that could be done at that time is now looked upon as, 
well, look how they screwed this up. They handled it without gloves. Well, mm-hmm. everybody was handling it without gloves because they couldn't do any more with it in 1990. You know. So, mm-hmm. but that is an interesting case. And your first one, I didn't realize that. First one. Very first. Uh, As a consulting. Yeah, I was talking, you know, what happened is I was up in Seattle lecturing, and uh, I started lecturing before I really knew a lot about blood patterns, but I, uh, Dr. Larry Lumen, who really pushed me to get into blood patterns, he said, get into it, get into it. He, 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 he was a believer of, you know, that it had some validity. So that being said, uh, I started focusing a lot on it at his urging. And uh, so... That's when we started doing experiments and, and just didn't understand it at crime scenes at all. Uh, but through his encouragement, then that was very, very, very helpful. And I lost my train of thought. We're taking it oh, that's okay. Yeah, mine, mine leaves the station without me all the time. It's okay. We just we go somewhere else. <laughs> we go. go to a different track. <laughs> so. Um, and then there's uh, another case that uh, well we're actually getting on nine o'clock now. Uh, Michael, you still with us? I'm still with you. You broke up a little bit, but I'm. Still oh, playing. sorry. Yes. Okay. <laughs> hey, Michael. Oh, Michael. Do you want to do it? Do you want to break for a commercial real quick? Yeah, we can definitely break for a commercial real quick. Get Sub on Vapors a nice little shout out, and uh, we'll be right back. Great. I'll just hang on here. Are you looking for the best yes, deal for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub on Vapors. Vape it like you built it. We're back. Uh, this is very convincing with 
Michael Carnahan, Lisa O'Brien, and Rod Angler, who's our special guest tonight. And I've got to say, I've, I looked at the clock and I thought it's nine o'clock. I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> yeah. This has been really informative and very interesting. This show has been fascinating. Once again, I want to thank you, Rod, for coming on. I, I'm just sitting over here listening to all this, and I'm just like, wow. It's it's really cool to me. Well, great. Thank you. So, now, um, I read in your bi- biography, you volunteer with a cold case group of detectives and forensic uh, experts in different fields in uh, Oregon, and you all are working on cold cases in the Multnomah County area. Yes, in Multnomah County, where I retired in 95, I joined uh, our sheriff at that time, Sheriff Skipper, uh, really felt that these old cases should be resolved, and when he stopped being the sheriff, he pushed the office to start a cold case team. It was very encouraging, and uh, they did. And there's, uh, I think, about 10 of us on the team. And uh, we worked some of these old cases. That are, One of them that I'm still involved in is one that hasn't been solved, but we already uh, have a very, very strong idea who it is. In fact, just two weeks ago, I drove out of state uh, from Portland and interviewed uh, one of the persons that knows who committed the murder of Eunice Carr, who was 74 years of age. It's in book. And she was put in a crucifix position, and her Bible was open next to her, and there was a cross that was laying like a paper cross, which was, Mm -hmm. if you tear the cross out of a piece of notebook paper, it's like eight inches tall and about four inches wide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the cross itself was like an inch all the way around. There was writing on it, and that cross had information on it that we overlooked way back when when this occurred in 74. Why? Right. There was a phone number written on it that led to some suspects that, that our office is now working that and going back and submitting Eunice Carr's clothing for DNA. And it's one that's been on my uh, to-do list ever since I uh, was one of the teams working it. And we had about three teams of detectives that tried to resolve it. And Correct. suspects in this case played games with us and they sent jewelry to us in the mail that they took out of her house and and uh and that was before cameras in like in the newspaper and and before computers and so we're still working it and, and I have right. very optimistic of that being resolved. I hope so because that that one is uh that one's a really really tough tough thing because you know the older lady living alone she was one of the most innocent defenseless victims out there um, and she tried to help these young kids all the time that were involved in it so y'all, y'all believe it was kids well, that were kids at were the time adults, or young adults uh, street, some young adults and uh, that uh, we're involved in it. We have information. They admitted doing it to some parties that we talked to. They said they were involved in it. So, right. And we've learned things that only the murderers would know. So 
it, it takes a lot of work trying to resurrect a case that's 30 years old, 34 years old. Right. Like that. And you, so, when you start, you kind of have to go back to the beginning and re-interview everybody and look at all your oh, information yeah. again. And um, did you uh, – there haven't been anything – any similar things, any similar patterns – in crimes in, in the intervening years, I would suspect. Yes, we have. Because that sounds those. like a signature yeah. behavior. Those, and uh, they're, they were part of a group of people where one individual who's in the century that we've talked with, Sin, he was sort of in these people, and he had his wife killed in another city. He used to be out of town and at a motel. He had her killed. And he would also have these kids commit burglary, burn money and stuff to him. Just just an evil person. Yeah. So. And uh, are there any other cases that you're working on with that unit? Several. I'm doing a lot of option uh, uh, Bob shootings, a lot. And that's why I'm in South California. Now I was in uh Los Angeles just last week and be on another one in uh, Riverside. So, uh, in fact, I've got it. That's what I've been working on before we made this call. I do a lot of those. Uh, Very, very interesting. The one in Arkansas is very interesting. Extremely interesting that that I am and that I've been working with the family on. Suicide or homicide. Uh, cases active right now. Okay, Rod, you're you're starting to break up a little bit, Michael. Sometimes we have a problem with the connection. Yeah, Rod's phone seems to be breaking up. Rod, are you with us? Yeah, you're breaking up. Oh, <laughs> you're breaking up for us. Do you have a storm moving through there, Michael? Because sometimes that affects uh, the connection. I don't believe so, but I can turn off my thing and it got a little hot. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so. Hopefully that'll be better for us. Okay. Rod's phone, or maybe the. Maybe his iPhone's dying. Something's dying. I can hear you very well. Michael's breaking up quite severely. Yeah. I, you're breaking up on my end, which, uh, I don't know, maybe the evil man is. I was about to say, as odd as it sounds, I got Lisa call, coming in crystal clear and we got Rod. Now you're now. clear. There now you're clear. There we go. Let's try again. So you're you're working officer involved shootings as well. Yes, quite a few. Quite yeah. a few all over the country. Oh. So I, I won't ask anything because those pro- are probably ongoing and uh, not not ones that you can talk about. Lisa, um, I think Rod actually dropped off of our call list somehow. So I oh, mean, really? Maybe it was his. Maybe it was his. Uh, maybe phone. it's his iPhone. 
Oh, yeah, and they, I, I think he said something about it getting like hot that. when they when they tried to charge it. I hope. Oh, there we go. Now he should be back. Okay. Hold on. Are we Rod, back? Do you hear us? I can hear you. Yes. Okay. I apologize. It looked like we lost you there for a second. You did. You did. Yeah. We're well, we're still. This is only. This is only episode yeah. five. We're still trying to iron out all the kinks. Well, it sounds like it's going quite well. I mean, I <laughs> just a little, little bit of interruption there, but, you know, that's... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it keeps it interesting, keeps us on our toes. Um, uh, what about other cold cases that you're working on in, in Oregon? Do you, do you have any that you can talk about? The one in Arkansas is, is a cold case. The other ones uh, in my office, the only one I'm helping out on there, and they have several, uh, two in particular, uh, I can't comment on, but the one that I just told you about, Uniscar, I can talk about. And that's the only one that I'm working there in, okay. in regards to a cold case. Uh, right. Because the other one, you know, we just finished one in Pennsylvania, uh, a case where... Uh, that was very, very interesting. Uh, it was one of those that was uh, Innocence Project, freed a person. So we got involved again and were able to give an opinion uh, about uh, some facts in the case that weren't disclosed before. You know, and, and we looked at the evidence. It was sent to my partner in Arizona. And so we looked at that and we were able to do some things with that. But, uh that's now, what was the case in what was the case in Pennsylvania? Uh, that was an innocence project case where a person was released that stated that he wasn't at the place when it occurred, and the blood patterns didn't coincide with what uh, had happened in the case. It's still pending, so I'm, I, it's, oh, uh, you can't talk about okay, yeah, okay. And we were able to look at and, and talk about blood patterns and tell exactly the prosecutor what the blood patterns meant. Right, so, right. And it was. It was revealing, so that was good. All so, right. Yeah, a lot of officer-involved shootings. Uh, there's so many of them around the country, and uh, so many misconceptions about them uh, when officers uh, shoot somebody and they're shot in the back. People don't understand that uh, when a person is confronted with someone with a gun or with what appears to be a gun or the threat of harm to him or her, that mm-hmm. they, their mind, and, and I testify to this, uh, it's called use, it's uh, force science. It takes you know, a certain portion of a second to decide to pull the trigger. And then when you pull the trigger, it takes a certain amount of time of a second to actually pull it. And then once you start pulling the trigger, it takes another certain amount of time to be able to tell your mind, or your mind tells you to stop. Well, mm-hmm. in that time that I just described to you, a person can do a 360 before you before you even shoot and stop shooting. And do a 360. Right. And, and there's what's called the 21-foot rule. If someone's coming at you with a, a knife or, or a hatchet or something like that, he can get to you in that 21 feet before you can decide to pull the trigger and hit him mm-hmm. and harm him. And people don't understand that. You know, I mean, it's a a big controversial thing right now in Sacramento. 
uh, that's mm-hmm. going on. You probably read it in the newspaper in the last week yeah. where uh, that shooting occurred. Well, things are hitting the newspaper before all the facts come out, and these facts are really, really important. And, mm-hmm. and people can get stirred up by what appear to be uh, or presented as facts when they're not factual. And I can name right. case after case like that. Correct. And I agree. Some of the, some shootings across the country are not in policy. But most of those shootings, when a police officer hears she is threatened and, and they fire, those are in policy. In mm-hmm. other words, they, they, you know, a lot of police officers go to the nth degree before they pull that trigger. And some get right. hurt and some get hurt. So, right. Exactly. That's the thing. And, and when I watch a lot of times now that videos are being released – on a, you know, almost a regular basis. Um, but a lot of times the media and the pundits, they look at the officer's actions, but they never seem to want to look at the suspect's actions. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, it's the suspect's actions that trigger the chain of events that leads to the shooting. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Because in the Michael Brown case out of Ferguson, Missouri, had Michael Brown and his little friend said, okay, officer, and gone up on the sidewalk, that would have been the end of it. Mm-hmm. But instead, Michael Brown got belligerent and his friend even described the officer as being rude to them or not speaking to them, you know, respectfully, and and that made Michael mad or something like that. Well, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, police officers should be professional and they should be courteous, but if they aren't, take that up with their supervisor. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Getting belligerent back and punching him in the head is not going to change his attitude. That's true. That's that's right. Uh, And arguing back isn't going to change the, you know, it it isn't going to change the situation. Right. Um, I I had a story about uh, I was pulled over for speeding in Marion, Arkansas, and the officer was very curt with me, and you know he wasn't. How are you doing tonight, ma'am? He's like, do you know how fast you were going? I clocked it, you know. 60-something and or 70-something in a 50-mile-an-hour zone. And I didn't argue back with him. I just said, I didn't realize that. I'm, I apologize. And he went back to his car and brought me back my ticket, and I signed it and told him to have a nice night. And he was told me to have a nice night back, but he had to give me a ticket. <laughs> um, but, you know, he he wasn't. He wasn't chatty Cathy uh, and being like, I'm really sorry to do this, but you were going 20 miles over the speed limit. And I think he did cut it down to 10. So, but, you know, sometimes they're people. And I have, mm-hmm. I have resting bitch voice sometimes. So I sound like I'm mad even when I'm not. <laughs> so, but you were, you were about to say something. I, I apologize. I, I, interrupted you. I don't have any comment about any of that. Uh, <laughs> so not gonna, but there's not a gonna lot of yeah. And I understand that police 
should be held to a somewhat higher standard. But if you know, if you don't argue with them, if you're not belligerent, things are going to go much better. That's right. You. It's all attitude. All and attitude. I, I've also told people, if you think they're wrong, take it up with a judge in a court. Because you're not going to change their mind by mm-hmm. arguing back and forth with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, watch watch more cops. Watch more live PD. The people that are nice and respectful get respect back. Mm-hmm. The people that are not nice and respectful usually end up in handcuffs. So... But uh, it is sad that there are so many shootings and uh, officer-involved shootings, and then we had officers being attacked, and we've had some officers attacked, and it's well, just really the, sad. Well, majority of the, I shouldn't say majority, a lot of these, like the one that I'm working today, is suicide by cop. And they yeah. learn about this, and they, they, you know, and and that's difficult. You know, you have... Uh, a lot of agencies across the country are training their officers to deal with mentally ill people because there's no facilities for mentally ill anymore. I mean, there's just nothing you can do. They're out on the street and homeless and, and uh, even within homes mm-hmm. and wealthy people that have mental illnesses that do crazy things that are, they're a danger. They're a danger right. not only to themselves, but to others and, Especially that officer when he or she arrives to take care of a, a of a phone call, a nine one one call. Right. And I think that's something people don't really recognize is that when you're a police officer, you're called to a situation, and you don't know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. You have to right. figure that all out when you get there. And I mean, you had an experience early in your career where you were stopping just to check to make sure someone was okay, and that person just nearly beat you or did beat you within an inch, inch of your life. And there was no reasoning with him. There was no talking to him. He just went crazy on you. Yeah. And that's how fast things, you know, things move and things go. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, as I recall reading in the book, I mean, you not tapped on his window, sir, and then he was on you, and you were in a fight for your life. I had an opportunity to shoot, and I didn't want to. Correct. Second thought, and I hit him in the head with my gun. I got in trouble for that because I didn't have a baton. So we went through baton training. All of us, the whole department, went went through baton training, and I was the dummy at the front and getting being made an example of. But at the same time, I'm, I'm alive, and he was huge, and he was on top of me, and uh, and I got my gun out, and, and it went across my mind, well, I can stop this right now, but I didn't. And I'm glad right. that's the decision that was made. Right. Because so. that is a very, that's a, something else that a lot of people don't realize. For most, for anyone, Mm-hmm. Having to take someone's life, even in defense of your own, mm-hmm. is a very traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. 
and it affects, you know, police officers when they have to shoot someone in the line of duty. It usually, uh, it can sometimes mean that they don't want to do that. Any, they don't want to be a cop anymore, even mm-hmm. if it was a lifelong dream. And um, so it's it's not an easy decision to make. Yeah. And not and and it's not a it's not a one size fits all situation or decision. Mm-hmm. I might handle. I might. I would have handled that totally differently. You know, I probably would have pulled the gun sooner and shot the guy. You know, sooner, because mm-hmm. it was that it, it was that out of control, and he wasn't he wasn't going to stop. Um, but uh, you know, and like as you did, you took the gun out and then decided to use it as a blunt instrument instead of using it as a, a pistol. You know the uh, you know the, the story after that, don't you? When he appeared in court, the judge got mad at me. I was in court and he had this big bandage around his head. He was an engineer. Yeah. I, yeah, I recall that. Aviation, aviation industry. And yeah. uh, he was a and the judge was mad at me and so I went to the chief and told the chief, you know, it was uncalled for. Why did the judge do that to me? And uh, saying those things embarrassed me. And uh, so the chief, uh, Morgan, went and talked to the judge. And uh, the judge and I didn't talk to each other for a while, and we became best friends. And I uh, just went to his funeral uh, down here in Southern California, Riverside National Cemetery, just about a year a year ago. And we became yeah. very, very good friends, you know, yeah. I, and, and, I remember, uh, but didn't he, as I recall, he kind of had the the real turnaround when he went on like a ride-along with you. He did. He went, I was in control, and uh, he went on a ride-along, and, and I didn't know, unbeknownst to me, it was set up by the judges in this district, there were four of them, that I was making too many narcotics cases while I was in control. Well, I just, I don't know, it's just one of those things that just became uh, part and parcel to my job. You know, you could smell weed, you could, you know, when people were stashing, you pull them yeah. over or have these hunches and just making a lot of arrests. So Judge Emerson rode with me and I set up radar and he's riding in the right front seat. And, and we hadn't made up at that time. You know, he just wanted to ride along with someone. Well, he was all staged. I mean, it was all planned for him to ride along with me to see how, you know, this guy could be doing this. And he, they thought I was lying, that I was making this stuff up. Right. And, uh, so we set up radar on, on an imperial highway, very high traffic area. And this Ford comes by, black Ford, and it whips by sort of about 65 and a 45. And I pulled it over and I said, and I called him Your Honor, and I said, you know, Judge, look, look what he's doing. And the guy was bending over and like putting something under the front seat, stashing it, you know? Mm-hmm. So when I walked up to the car, I asked the judge, I said, if you want to get out, just stand back by the right rear fender of his car, but don't come any closer. And so I went up to the guy, and he rolls his window down about a half inch, and you could smell weed coming out, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I told the judge, I said, come here, Your Honor. So he walks over, and I said, just stay right there and just smell. What do you smell? 
And I didn't know why he was riding with me, you know. I thought, this is a good witness. And, uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I smell it. So, anyway, I got the guy out, hooked him up, and and I said, what is, look, look down there, Your Honor. And right between the, uh, his legs under the front seat was a gun sticking out of a revolver. And right. Hooked him up, and the judge assisted me in pulling all these jars. You know what a jar is? jar was lingo for a 1,000 pills. So he had about eight mm-hmm. jars. For sale, you know. I mean, you can't you can't you know? It was a big stash. He was going to make a delivery, so he had a, mm-hmm. a, a jar called White's Bend of Dream then, and some Nimbutal, which was yellows, and uh, it was it was like uh, barbiturates. So he was a dealer. Well, that was all over. Then everything I was golden after that, you know. And the judge got all ticked off because uh, it was dismissed in superior court. He was held to answer. Uh, in the in the district that uh, where we were, and then your cases go to Superior Court, which is downtown Los Angeles, and it was mm-hmm. dismissed because legislation legislative was riding with the judicial, and you can't put those two together. The judge oh. was so mad. It was so mad, you know. The legal oh my God! But the judge was with me. The district attorney dismissed it because the defense made such a big deal about it. Oh, that is such a legal technicality. It's not even we became funny. Buddies. We became buddies. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, well, I think you you did seem to have um, in a lot of situations you did have to seem to have that sixth sense. Uh, if you remember the old uh, the TV show Adam Twelve. Yeah. What was often to re- refer to as you'd get that hinky feeling. Or yeah. something was hinky. Yeah. You, you or people were acting hinky. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just that feeling that something's just not quite right. Um, no, it's called Correct. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, uh, and, but people don't understand, you know, that's, uh, that's a, like a sixth sense that police officers have. And there are certain yeah, things, yeah, you know. White, black, or brown doesn't matter what your race is. I mean, when you, you smell trouble, you know it. You know, and mm-hmm. you react. That's right. what's called protecting your citizens. That's protecting the people. That that's why you're there to protect people and to protect their dignity, to protect them safe wise, so that they can be comfortable and their children can right. and, uh, enjoy themselves in the community at parks, at church, at houses, at friends, uh, and business, whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but uh, well, sir, I've, well, yeah, I've had debates about the, the profiling, but unfortunately, you know, it, the people to blame are the people that are out there doing drugs, smoking drugs, selling drugs. Yeah. They're bringing the bad attention down on everybody else who's not doing those things. Right. You know, um, but like I said, when I was pulled over, I had my glove box open, my hands on the steering wheel, and I asked him for permission to go into my glove box to get my registration and my proof of insurance because mm-hmm. I couldn't get those, you know, driving 70 miles an hour down the road, slowing down to pull over. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I waited till he was at the window before I leaned over to get my, my stuff out of the glove box. And had it open so that he could see that it was clear. Mm-hmm. Because I know it's about him going home 
to his family as much as it was me going home mm-hmm. on my way home from work. And if you just do those things, no matter who you are or what your race or what your socioeconomic background is, you know, the police can be really great people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but uh, well, that's now... That's that a policeman walks up to the car where he's playing a hunch, he's got one foot probably in the grave, and especially when he goes and knocks on the door of a domestic violence situation. Correct. He's got one foot Correct. in the grave. He's a step away from getting killed, especially in domestic yeah. violence things. Husband and wife fights every time, you know. It's, it can be yeah. dangerous, and that's how you have to approach it. With uh, You have to be smart about it, and you still may lose. Correct. Because it's you're walking... Police officers are walking into the unknown mm-hmm. 90% of the time, maybe 95% of the time. I just want to because a police officer stops a car, a very nice-looking car, a, a high-end vehicle, and the guy gets out, just a normal-looking guy, and the police officer tells him over the mic, get back in your car, get back in your car. The guy just pulls a gun and shoots at him, you know? He's been killed. Right. Right. Alive. I mean, just, I mean, uh, training, training, training is what keeps police officers alive. Yeah. Correct. And, uh, well, and now another case well, that's, I mean, um, that well, we, I was about to we, say, uh, just the other day, Lisa, here in Arkansas, I don't know if you had seen this, if it made national news or not. But just the other day, about, I want to say, about a 45-minute drive down the road in Malvern, it was probably about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and a woman just gets pulled over in a traffic for a traffic stop in Malvern, and she ends up taking shots at a uh, state trooper, and they she took off afterwards. But luckily, the state trooper ended up surviving, but yeah. I mean, every yeah. single time they got me on their guard as far as that stuff goes, no matter who it is, man, woman, child, anything. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, I didn't hear about and that. No, I, I hadn't heard about that. Um, uh, one of the ones I remember was the the one over in, I think it was in Westminster, Marion, where the, what was it, the... Uh, Sovereign citizen and his son, and the two West Memphis PD officers had the father under control, but they weren't really paying any attention to the son. And the oh. son went in the van and pulled and got a, a gun and just killed him. That's but crazy. they thought he's 16. Mm-hmm. You know, he 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 wasn't a big deal to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, um, we talked about it on American Idiots. That kid that we were talking about on the previous podcast, American Idiots, about two three months ago, CJ from right here in North yeah. Little Rock. That kid was, I believe, 16 or 17 when his incident occurred. So, I mean. These kids nowadays Correct. are even dangerous. Correct. And that's also an example of how the uh, the media reports 
information that's not necessarily accurate, and they start reporting before the facts can be gathered during the investigation. Uh-huh. Because oh, the facts that were being reported were that he was on the ground, not resisting with his arms, you know, out yeah. at his sides, and they just shot him. Mm-hmm. And, and that he didn't even have a gun. But they had they had the the dash cam, and they almost immediately released the dash cam. And um, mm-hmm. you know that that showed that's another thing that technology today is making it somewhat easier mm-hmm. to know what really happened and how it really happened, and What's not having to rely on perceptions. Yeah. What's your opinion about body cams from a citizen's viewpoint? Well, you know, I think think that they, yeah, I I think that they do serve a purpose, and I I think it's good because in, in a lot of cases, people will resist or get belligerent, and then the story that they tell after they're arrested, is that they never did anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that the officer the was, you know, rude and belligerent to them. And if yeah, that's not what occurred, um, I, I think it does help. I mean, I know some some agencies and some officers felt that it was um, intrusive and and was meant to, I don't know, kind of spy on them. Uh-huh. But I think I think it's they're working through the issues, and I think they've gotten a pretty good handle on seeing that it does help you because you have an arrest, oh, yeah. and they're belligerent with you, and you bring them down to the station, and then you know they talk to a supervisor and say. Everything they said to you is what you said to them, and racial epithets were used, et cetera, et cetera. When they mm-hmm. have that body camera yeah. footage to look out, they can see who was wrong and who was right. Mm-hmm. Now, and I've seen, you know, flip- dash cam and body cam where the officers have a lot more patience than I would have had mm-hmm. with the individual. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, on the flip I have a temper. I, I would have lost I- it. I'm not sure whether it was a body cam. I believe it was actually a, the footage I saw was from up top, so I believe it may have been a helicopter or something. But this footage about the gentleman who was shot recently, I believe it was in the last two weeks, uh, and he had a cell phone in his hand, and the police mis- mistook it for a gun. What a lot of people, I, I mean, I understand, yes, it would be hard to mistake a cell phone for a gun, but it's dark. And you got to react quick. So, I mean, I can somewhat see a little bit of that as well. But, I mean, a lot of people, you know, sometimes the footage being released works the opposite way, unfortunately, and shows that maybe they did do something incorrectly or something as well. Yeah, it works himself on cases. Yeah. And looks like the butt of a gun. Yeah. uh, used in suicide by cop. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think one of the things today it's all tragic. Yeah, I, I think that it's. I don't think it's unreasonable for a police officer to think if the guy is running and hiding that my life could be in jeopardy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, The Alton Sterling case in Baton Rouge is one, you know, people, including the chief of police there, seem to have forgotten that these two officers were dispatched to a call about a man in a red shirt with a gun threatening Mm -hmm. people with it. Mm -hmm. And the man in the red shirt would not stay still, would not obey their commands, would not put his hands on the car. He kept turning around saying, what? What did I do? Why are you doing this? What did I do? I didn't do anything. And that, you know, one of the officers was a bit more aggressive, I think, than he perhaps should have been. Mm-hmm. But... um I don't know if I can really fault him in that situation because, again, the person, sometimes you have to be aggressive like that to try and shock the other person into compliance. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's a valid principle or not, but, you know, I, I think if you react a certain way and it's not expected, then the other person is going to think, okay, maybe I better change my tune. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I've seen the video several times, and, you know, I still don't know that uh, it it wasn't justified. Mm-hmm. Because, again, Sterling had a gun, and he had been threatening people with it. That's right. And, and he was a felon. So he probably did not want to get caught with a gun. No, absolutely not. Rod, and so, you know, what do you think about the body cams? What do I think about body cams? Yes, sir. Yes. I, I like them. I, I, at first, I was skeptical of it, what it would do, but having just looked at one as recent as today and one I'm working in an officer-involved shooting, uh, all for it. I mean, it clears up everything. I mean, person is coming at them uh, in a, with uh, a weapon, and they have to make a quick decision, these officers, and they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, question. I know you probably can't release too much stuff because I'm sure it's still ongoing, but is there a lot of controversy surrounding that that maybe, the, that maybe you've been able to show, you know, the key people, the body cam footage, and it's alleviated that? Uh, yeah, the public gets to see a lot of it, but uh, usually that stuff is you know, proprietary, not released. It's, you know, really protected until trial. And when mm-hmm. some of it would clean everything up uh, right away, but it's just there's policies about that, and you just don't do it, you know? Right. So, right. Right. And Alan Sterling, they they didn't release the body cam footage until the feds and the state 
uh, declined press charges, and I believe they didn't release it until Baton Rouge PD had done their internal investigation uh-huh. and completed that, which they did not do until after the feds and the state decided mm-hmm. whether or not to press charges. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it is a difficult it, it's a difficult topic. And it is, and it's tough on police officers because you know I don't know of any police officer that I've ever ran into, and I've interviewed. I interview a lot of them. It's uh, coming up next week and and last week, and uh, I haven't met one yet that has been in any way uh, happy about what happened. Never. Right. Just, right. Just depression, and they don't like it. It just. Not, it's just not in their DNA, you know. I, I've never had oh, a cavalier about it. Not, you know, I mean, with a cavalier attitude, you know, uh, I got a notch on my gun, you know, big deal. No way. Mm-hmm. No way. So, Right. Oh, and I think man. that's something, too. The, a lot of members of the public believe that this is something police officers enjoy doing yeah, and want to do. They they don't go out and set these things up like poking bear, you know. They just don't. I don't see them doing that. Yeah. Um, these things are legitimate. Yelling, stop! Drop the gun! Drop the gun! Drop the knife! Drop this! You know, show me your hands! Show me your hands! And that's and when people don't do it, and they come up with that hand, you like like Michael said, you have just a split second, and then in mm-hmm. a split second, your mind tells you you got to pull the trigger. That takes time. And then when you pull the trigger, that takes time. And already things have happened that could be too late for you. So. Right, right. Uh, we we were discussing in my office one day, two officers, I'm not quite sure where the jurisdiction was. A mother called, her mentally ill son lived with her. And she called police because she couldn't deal with him. He was... Mm-hmm either off his meds or having, you know, some kind of psychotic break. She could mm-hmm. no longer deal with him. She called police. He had a, a large screwdriver. And he came toward the police with the large screwdriver in his hand. They mm-hmm. ordered him many multiple times to drop it. Mm-hmm. And he didn't, and one of them fired. And, you know, I had somebody in my office say, well, it was a screwdriver. It couldn't do anything. It was a screwdriver. They could have hit him in the arm. They could have shot him in the leg. I said, look, first of all, a screwdriver can kill you, even a, even a small one, a pen, can kill you in a second if you hit just the right spot in the neck. Or put your eye out. Or, you know, mm-hmm. it could go to the neck. You bet. Um and officers aren't expected to be injured nope. to avoid someone else being injured. You know, that's not that's not how it works. But mm-hmm. uh, I know when I took firearm training, they did not encourage us to try to shoot people in the arm or the leg. They discouraged us from even trying to make a headshot. Their instruction was center mass, double tap, and that's it. Mm-hmm. 
because the arms, the head, the legs are smaller targets, basically. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I can't see police officers being trained to shoot people in the arm to disarm them. That happens in the movies, but not in real life. Right. Usually when you shoot them in the arm and you disarm them, you were trying to shoot them in the chest, you missed. Yeah. So, of course, I was also advised to um, not have my gun anymore because all I could do was throw it at the guy. <laughs> and do more damage that way. Because <laughs> I was really, oh, you're going to shoot your TV, you're going to shoot holes in the wall. Right. But, uh, so, um, one final case that you had that was really interesting, the net toger. Um, oh, yeah. Christopher Ritchie. Christopher case. Ritchie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Chicago. Crestview. Yeah. That was that was a really interesting one because of the steps Ritchie took mm-hmm. to try to avoid detection. But also, uh, yeah, and DNA and and evidence against him, but also some of the steps that he took that led him to become a suspect, Mm -hmm. such as being at the hotel when he wasn't working and looking at the guest computers Mm -hmm. and... um, he, he actually he went back in the room and he went back in the adjoining room and locked the door, not realizing that she had her suitcase in front of her room door. Mm-hmm. So there was no way somebody could have gotten in. It was it was a locked door mystery. Well, he came through that he had the he had the being the manager of whatever his role was there maintenance manager, he got in through uh, the adjoining door because he fixed her her door so it wouldn't wouldn't close. And, you know, these little things that swivel and there's mm-hmm. a little ball that swivel goes on it. Well, he shaved the ball down. There were filings on the floor and shaved yeah. it down. And then he could just come right in and uh, nobody would ever know the difference, you know. And then he also, and I don't know if if you knew this, I don't know if I put in the book that there was a mirror up against the wall to the adjoining room, and he scraped that clean so he could look through from a hole that he created in the sheetrock from the adjoining room, disabled room. He put her in a disabled handicap room, and he was able right. to look from the adjoining room through, pull off that sheetrock behind the bed, and look through the hole in the mirror so he could watch it. Right. Yeah, he was something. He made a one-way mirror, a two-way mirror, mirror yeah. by taking the scraping the backing off. Right, and it was really tough. Uh, her parents were in that courtroom. I met them afterwards, and that, that was those poor people. They were very I wealthy. Know. People. They owned a steel company, and they lived in Florida. And she lived down there. Her sister was a physician, and that was a tough case. Nan was a, a rare, beautiful, worked out all the time, and I guess that's what attracted uh, Richie. Mm-hmm. Now, 
He was tried and convicted. Twice. Twice. Yeah. Where does his case stand as far as uh, post-conviction? I, I mean, I'm sure the direct appeal is over. Yeah, he got another trial, and I don't know why it was reversed. There was a reason why it was reversed by the state of Illinois. Uh, yeah. And so he got another trial, and I don't, I don't know why not testified at that trial also. Okay. I was I trying to find opinions, but... Didn't find anything. I'll do some more digging, though, and let you know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know. I thought I testified at the second one, but I don't know. I think I did. I know I met with the prosecutors, and maybe he pled. That's right. I think he pled to stay out of the, the, the gas chamber for death. I think he pled to life. I think that's what Okay. Gosh, I've now, this was in... This was, I think, in Miami, in Florida. Which one are you talking about? Nanette Toder, Christopher Ritchie. She lived, uh, yeah, she lived down there, but she was going up to a flower show or some kind of show uh, for a week, and she was attending these, and she was getting ready to leave the next day when he knew that she was going to leave and check out, so he made his move. And, uh, okay. Raped her. Okay. I'll, and, uh, I'll do some more. Her. I'll do him. some more digging and see if I can find. Uh, uh, and he may have pled, which would would end uh, direct appeal and post conviction. Not necessarily, yeah. but theoretically, it should end it. But uh, I will do some more digging tomorrow, and see what I can figure out. On you know, Mr. Richie, talking to these victims, and that's a few words who my book was dedicated to for the victims. I guess one of the toughest ones dealing with victims was uh, a lady in uh, New Mexico, Farmington, New Mexico, or south of there, a Navajo, uh, and she had probably 50 members of her family in that courtroom when I used, I picked up the sledgehammer and described the position that the sledgehammer had to be in when it was slammed down on their daughter's head. Mm -hmm. And that was the most horrible thing. I had to show the jurors because of how the blood got onto the two individuals, which one was the attacker holding the sledgehammer uh, because of the blood pattern on his pants. Right. And that I remember that because I think each of them was saying the other guy did it. Yeah, they were pointing. Things. Yeah, I, I I remember that one from the book too. Um, which all the people got hugs and stuff that hugged them. It was, it was tough on them. I mean, yeah, it was tough. tough. And, I, and I remember going to the scene. I was picked up at the airport in Farmington. We went to the scene out in the desert, and and the person that picked me up had some uh, sage hanging from the rearview mirror. And when we got to the scene, he lit that sage to drive the spirits away. Because I asked him about it. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm just not familiar with this. Uh, tell me about it. And it was to drive the bad spirits away before we got out of out of his little pickup. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
seen a lot of stuff, and I do it all over again. Yeah, yeah. Now the the book you um you wrote, Blood Secrets. Um, is there a is there a second a sequel, a second book? Working on it. Working on it. Working. <laughs> Great. On it. Yes, it's going to be a little bit different, and uh, have an illustrator. It's going to be a lot of illustrations, and so have a meeting again next week, and with uh, the person I'm collaborating with to do my illustrations. Yeah. Oh, and that's we'll wonderful. We'll get it out uh, in a year, I hope. You know, it, they're just it takes a lot of time to write a book. A lot of time. Mm-hmm. The other one took four years. It took four years to do. You know. Correct. In fact, I think the case in New Mexico, I think at the time you wrote Blood Secrets, it hadn't been concluded yet. There were a couple of cases that you mentioned in in Blood Secrets that uh, hadn't been resolved at the time you'd written the book. And this might have been one of them. And Nanette Toter might have been another one that wasn't resolved. No, I think that was resolved, or I wouldn't have put them in the book. But I don't know. Okay. Which I know the Gettysburg situation has about the DNA. And, uh, you know, I held Lincoln's hair in my hand. In fact, I'm, gonna, I'm thinking about how I can use that, uh, what happened in this case when I was back at Gettysburg, the person that allowed me to look at uh, uh, some of the artifacts from back in during the Battle of Gettysburg? Yes. I yes, Jenny Jenny Wade. Anyway, he said, You want to see I something? I forgot her to put her in the email. <laughs> yeah, I said We're yeah, gonna have uh, to have you back. Yeah, we walked into a walk in safe and he said, You wanna see Lincoln's hair? I said, Nah, come on, you gotta be kidding me. He handed me Abraham Lincoln's hair. And it had and I have pictures of it and it had blood around it's a clump of hair. Like he, and uh-huh. it was removed, and it was he gave me a certificate that I took a picture of, of the medical examiner, the pathologist that time that did the autopsy of Abraham Lincoln, wrote that this is a clump of his hair that I have removed, and he had that, he had that hair, and he said, would you like to take this, and do some examination? I said, you know, I just don't feel right about doing that. I'm kicking myself now. You know, I yeah, I would have committed it because there's so many people working on Lincoln. So many people. But uh, mm-hmm. he died. Uh, uh, the person that did that, that owned the Jenny Wade house, passed away and his sister family member took over. And they turned that Lincoln hair over to uh, Smithsonian. And I'll never get it now. You know. I don't know. Yeah, you probably have to get a job with the Smithsonian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so the government the government owns it now. Yes. So that is really awesome. I I forgot I, I should have put Jenny Wade. I meant to put Jenny Wade in there. But I forgot. So we definitely we would love to have you come back. Well great. Michael? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I'd love to have him back. I I um, absolutely enjoy I did. Too. I mean, it's it's almost ten o'clock, and right. it's like it, it we just so sat quick. down. 
And that's one of our sure signs of a great guest and a great topic and a great show is that the time just flies. Um, so definitely I will uh, I will reach out to you and, and we'll get another schedule perhaps. Uh, let me know the next time you're going to be back at home in Oregon uh, when you've got a Tuesday night when you're going to be home in Oregon with nothing to do. Okay. <laughs> we can uh we can have you back because this was just incredibly fascinating and informative and interesting and it's just amazing that the the course of your life we need more than two hours. Absolutely. Because I could list I could listen to you go through every single case. You and you remember, time book. Time book. <laughs> I we are, but there are a lot of us out there. I am yeah. members of Facebook groups where, I mean, we are we are crime buffs. Mm-hmm. Um, Nothing wrong, with and that. we're not, and we're proud of that. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, you remember what I told you? That first case. You heard hoof beats, yeah. and you thought horses, not zebras, That's and there's right. nothing wrong with that. That's right. That could, that is instead of being something that you you know are are I don't I don't know if embarrassed is the right term, but it should be that was your inspiration because you saw this and you. You wanted to know why this happened, how it happened. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, and I think sometimes some people hear hoofbeats and they think zebras. Yeah. Not horses. <laughs> or antelopes. There you go. Right. Because <laughs> you, you, you have a very, you know, a very reasonable, logical approach to things and questions. And it's fascinating. I can't say enough. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, once again, I echo everything she says. It's been a fascinating show, and it went by so quick. I wish we could go longer, but I definitely want you to come back. Well, I appreciate you asking me. I'm honored that you would ask me to be in the show. Uh, and I want to thank you for allowing me to, to talk. So, Again, thank you. You have a wealth of knowledge and experience that uh, – you know, that you should share. And so we definitely will have you back. Well, thank you very much. And and certainly contact me a year down the road when the new book is ready and going to press because we'd love to have you back on to discuss that for sure. Okay, that would be great. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. 
Well, Rod, we're going to go ahead and let you get back to your evening. We hope you have a good rest of your evening, and we'll talk at you later. We certainly appreciate you coming on, Rod. You're welcome, and I look forward to talking to you again. And thank you for your kindness, and thank you for for sharing this kind of stuff with the people out there. Okay, have a good evening. Thank you so much. Good night. Night. Well, that was definitely informative, Lisa. And, you know, we went so far as we went into overtime now. So, you know, obviously nobody can hear us live. But, you know, I definitely, definitely love that show. That was amazing. That was. It really was. And uh, he, we definitely will have uh, Rod back because he's worked oh, on yes, so I- many cases. Uh, and and he's got such a great way of of explaining and providing information. Um, and also, I mean, you you know, you learn something. Oh yes, I mean, about, I like I was watching Justice Network. I don't know if you've ever watched that, but it's kind of like Investigation Discovery. Okay, yeah, I I I don't think Fox has that. Um, and if they do, it might be in a premium channel. So, well, let's. Uh, I guess we're gonna we're gonna head out. Let me uh, let me close out the show, and then we're gonna turn off the lights. Um, yes, thank ma'am. you, everybody, for listening. <laughs> thank you, everybody, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com and you can follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L.A.N. Join us next week for Episode 6, State of Florida versus Casey Anthony. In 2008, the disappearance of Kaylee Anthony sparked weeks of intensive searches for her in the Orlando area. Casey Anthony initially claimed that Kaylee had been kidnapped by a fictitious babysitter. Authorities soon discovered that everything Anthony told them had been a lie and arrested her and charged her with various criminal charges related to the disappearance and eventually the death of Kaylee Anthony. In 2011, a jury convicted Anthony of lying to police but failed to find her guilty in the death of her daughter. We'll be talking about Anthony's many false statements to police as well as the defense strategy that tried to excuse all of Anthony's many lies and pointed a finger at Kaylee's grief-stricken grandfather, George Anthony. So that is going to be an interesting show. Absolutely. And we'll probably spend two hours recounting the lies. Oh, yeah. There's going to be a ton of those. And I know a bunch of people that can't wait for that episode because, you know, there's a bunch of these old Southern mamas that, Follow that case worse than they follow, or closer than they followed OJ. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. definitely still a lot of people that are pretty hot about you know Casey getting off for that, and wherever Casey is right now, you know, living the OJ life basically. Yeah, she's um, yeah she's uh, apparently as of a year ago she was living with a a private investigator that had worked on her case in Palm Beach. And so uh, you know how she's paying her rent. Oh, yeah. Try to say <laughs> she pay her. Yeah. 
So uh, that'll be a that'll be a great show, and we will see everyone next week. Absolutely. Well, for Lisa O'Brien, I'm Michael Carnahan. We're going to turn out the lights on this episode. We'll see you next week for State of Florida versus Casey Anthony. Good night, everyone. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night. <laughs> 